Today we begin uh, a, a section in the Romans that's the first part of the doctrinal section of this book. And as you know, we're in a series titled Be Transformed. And we've done the intro to the letter, the theme of the letter last week. Now we get into a section, really two sections we're going to be able to address in this series. And that's the section in chapters 1, the end of chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 3, which is about sin and the doctrine of sin. And then we'll get into salvation or justification, which is chapters 3 through 5 and some of the issues that that brings about. The next three messages, uh, it, this is totally a, a, a coincidence that we started this on Valentine's Day. This is not a message of love in that sense. It's a message about how broken we are. In the midst of that, we're going to see God's love speaking into it. But I want to encourage you that these messages are so important. They really model in many ways uh, what this whole book is about when Paul says our minds need to be transformed, our, our theme. They need to be transformed by God's word and his truth and not conformed to the ways of this world. Because that's where uh, a lot of us, whether we want to believe it or not, have been trained and, and thought to believe about these concepts of love until we understand what the Bible truly talks about. So we have a tendency as Christians, in modern day Christians, to see Christianity and see Jesus as kind of a self-help program. Jesus will fix your marriage, he'll fix your finances, he'll fix your self-esteem, he'll fix all these things. And Jesus does change all those things, don't get me wrong. But he's not a self-help program in and of itself because we approach him as if that's what he's there for. And here's what happens when that's our mindset in coming to Jesus. Is as long as that happens, as long as your financial situation gets better, as long as your popularity increases, as long as your relationships seem to improve the way you want them to improve, you're good with Jesus and you hang on to Jesus and you'll, you'll keep him in your life. But as soon as it doesn't, then Jesus just becomes one of many options. And you'll dismiss him and you'll grab on to the next thing that will get you what you really want. See, that's not worshiping God, and that's not coming to Jesus as your Savior. It's seeing him as simply a psychological self-help option among many. And we approach him like that when we as a church skip messages like these we're going to look at today. And much of modern Christianity is skipping over a lot of this kind of stuff. A lot of churches, a lot of preachers don't want to talk about the issues of sin. Or if they do, it's a really quick, brief mention of it as we move on to the victory and the good things that God has for us right here in this life right now. But God didn't save us really for this life right now. He saved us for a much greater life, a new life on a new earth and a new heaven much later. And until you understand these truths, you'll never come to him the way we rightly should come to him. Let me give you a simple illustration, I think, that captures it. And then I'll preview what the next three messages in, and we'll jump into this first one. If you get onto an airplane, 
Say you were going on a flight, and when we get onto a flight, if you've ever been on a flight, oftentimes there's all these things that are important to us. You know, you're on your computer maybe, and you got your phone, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, when I get there, there's some great shopping and neat places to go, and all these things are important to you, and you're thinking, oh, I got to upgrade this phone when I get home. I hear the new iPhone 9 or 10 or 11 is coming out, and it's got all these features that are just going to change my life forever. Oh my goodness. And you, you're thinking about all these things, that those are your saviors. And you cling to them, and you want that stuff, and you think it's really important. But, but if you got on, and you got up in the air, and all of a sudden, somehow it was revealed to you that without a doubt, the plane that you are on is going to crash in this flight. Everyone's going down. A lot of things would be changed in your life in terms of what would be important to you. Suddenly, what would be most important to you is first, if there was parachutes on that plane, that parachute would be the most important thing in your life at that moment. Next would be that flotation device that we all glaze over as they're telling us about is under the seat if you happen to go down in the water. Those things would be of absolute importance. In fact, I guarantee those would be so important to you that you could care less about where your phone was, where your computer was, any of your possessions on there, or even where you might go shopping when you get to your destination. You would cling to those things like your life depended on it. That's what these messages are about. That's what God teaches us, that Jesus is not just a good option like a cell phone or a computer or a new pair of shoes or clothing that's going to make your life better. He is something that you desperately need for salvation. And until you understand that, Jesus will become a God among many gods that you worship in your life. These three sections of scripture, Paul is teaching us why the gospel is such good news. And he's going to paint the blackness of the backdrop for all of humanity of why Jesus Christ is the pinnacle and the beauty of salvation in all of humanity. And he's going to address three categories that were how the Greeks or Romans saw the world at that time. And he does it kind of in an argument. And we all kind of fit into each one. The first group he's going to address is, is what we would call paganism. People that have turned away from a true God and worship idols or people that could be out in, in deserted places that have no connection to civilization like we would call civilization. And he's going to talk about paganism in specific, but really we're going to see how a little bit of that fits in all of us because we're all humans. Then he's going to deal with what we might call moralism or culturism. This belief that, hey, we're civilized people. I mean, we wear clothes. You know, we live in homes. We don't live like these wackos out in the bush or in Africa. And, and this is just mindsets that we have as human. And he's gonna, hum, humans, he's going to address the brokenness that all these things that we go to as humans to save us are insufficient. And the last thing he's going to deal with is religionism. Okay, that's not a word, but I, it fit the other three, paganism, humanism, or culturalism and, and religionism. That's that even people who try to clean up their lives by their own religious practices are still trying to save themselves. He's going to address those three things and at the end, of, as he gets into chapter three, he's going to show us, that, hey, every one of them, I don't care what of the, uh, these groups that you were born into, all of us are sinners and fall short. We all desperately need God to save us. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 1 today, and we'll get into the first one. And even though Paul's addressing some of these general characteristics of humans and how we see the world, really Paul is revealing in each of them how parts of each of these contexts are true in, on all of us. They speak to each of us no matter where we come from. There's elements that are true, and I want to help you see that today. So three questions I want to answer today. Three questions that aren't real popular in Christianity today, but we're going to answer them today because the Bible talks about them, and that's this. Why is God angry? Paul's going to talk about God's anger, his wrath today, and we don't like as Christians nowadays this idea of an angry God. We're going to see why God's angry. We're going to see, secondly, how we made God angry. Third, we're going to see what results when we continue to make God angry. That's what we're going to see in this passage. And then I want to end with going back to what we saw last week to see how do we escape God's anger. Why is God angry? How do we make him angry? What happens when we continue to make him angry? And how can I escape God's anger? So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 18 and working to the end of that chapter today as we answer these questions. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you that you love us enough that you do not withhold truth that we need to hear. Lord, even like those people who have experienced that visit with a doctor when they heard for the first time some horrible news that someone they loved or they themselves has cancer. Lord, those are horrible words to hear. But Lord, that doctor would not be loving if instead of speaking what was necessary to develop a plan of action came out of his mouth or he hid it with some silly words that pointed us in a totally different direction because he didn't love us enough to tell us the news we needed to hear. Lord, these are messages that communicate your love for us, not because your goal is to condemn all of humanity, but because until we realize and recognize our state, we'll never humble ourselves and receive a Savior that we desperately need. So, Lord, my prayer is that you speak through this broken and imperfect vessel to a a group of broken and imperfect people and that your Holy Spirit take these truths and transform our minds as you promised and as Paul penned in this book. We love you and praise you and thank you that you love us this much to tell us these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18. This is the topic sentence, really, of this whole section. Uh, The next three chapters, in a sense, are into the middle of chapter 3. It says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's meaning mankind in general. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul's making a general statement, and the next three chapters are going to kind of tease that out in these three areas that we talked about. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This wrath is is a a word means anger, a righteous, punishing anger, adjusted anger against 
those who have committed indecent acts. It's a divine type anger that Paul's talking about here. So this is the question, why is God angry? And here's how we're going to answer it. Here's our first point. Is God's wrath is against the disrespect and disobedience of humanity. God's wrath is against the disrespect and disobedience of humanity. That's what these words mean when Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are two terms, and I've kind of rewritten them in words that are are modern day we can understand. The idea of ungodliness refers to uh, an irreverent attitude. That word means an, an irreverent attitude towards someone else. In this case, it's our irreverence towards God. It's an attitude that we have towards this supreme being, God. And the unrighteous, the word unrighteous, reveals our immoral actions, the way in which we act within his creation that goes against the order in which God created it to operate. So one deals primarily with our attitude toward him. The other deals with more our actions and how we live Uh, in light of that. So as I put in our point, it's a disrespect and it's a disobedience. And ungodliness carries that attitude. Now why anger or wrath? Why is it necessary? This is one of those topics that people don't like to think about and many people reject God, at least the God of the Bible, because of this aspect of him. I don't want a God who gets angry. We want a loving God. And I want to just propose to you for a moment that you can't have a loving God that doesn't get angry. In fact, I want to challenge you a little bit to think that I don't believe anyone really wants the loving God that we've created as a culture today. That you really do want a God who gets angry, who demonstrates wrath. And let me tell you why. Let me just illustrate it in a couple ways, uh, in a human way, and then we'll connect it to God. First of all, if you studied true love in the Bible and even God, you recognize that true love requires anger. You don't get angry at things that you don't care about. But what anger is, a true proper view of anger, is anger protects what is good from what is harmful or evil. The, the, the reason we struggle with it is we humans view God as demonstrating anger the way we do. And one of the problems with our brokenness is we as humans tend to use anger to protect our human selfish pleasures and our idols. We don't use it to protect what is good from what is evil. Let me give you an illustration that will help you understand why it's positive. If you were a parent, let's say you were at a school visiting the school and your child was at that school and they were out in the playground playing and all of a sudden you saw several little kids gang up on your child, start slandering them, start beating them, start pounding on them. Would you be a loving parent to sit there and do absolutely nothing while your child innocently was pummeled by those other kids? Would it be more loving for you to say, well, those kids don't know what they're doing. I I just need to excuse them for their behavior. They probably, whatever, you know, we make excuses for whatever it is. Would that be the loving thing to do, to just sit there and do nothing while your child was pummeled? Would that be considered loving? No. You would do what is necessary to protect what is innocent and good from what is harmful and wrong. That's what love does. Let me ask you this. If, if you were uh, the victim of a horrible crime, maybe a theft, maybe a murder, maybe a rape, and you were sitting in a court of law, 
and a judge was hearing the case, and the, and the evidence was slam dunk. But when it came to sentencing that criminal who had harmed you and your family in horrible ways, that judge went, you know what? I want to be a loving judge. And therefore, I don't want to get upset about what this guy did. I don't want to inflict any of my anger or wrath or justice upon him. So I'm going to let him go because that's what love does. Love just excuses everything. How would you feel about that judge? Would that be loving to release a man into a community to continue to do harmful things that hurt people who are innocent in that sense? No. You see, the love that we often talk about wrongly in this God that we've created in our society is that love that excuses our own behavior. We want a God who overlooks our sin because we don't want to deal with the reality of how broken and ugly we really are apart from God. But when it comes to everyone else, we don't want that same God. We want a God who does bring justice. What Paul's saying here is that that's inconsistent. That God demonstrates it to everyone impartially. And the truth is, you could never have hope for any kind of a future if you didn't have a God who loved in his anger to produce a future society, a future world, a future heaven that was free of all evil. If God excused everything and could not demonstrate wrath against evil, then he is impotent to create a new heaven and a new earth that's devoid of evil, that's separate of it, because he would have to excuse it all and allow us all in, continuing to be exactly as we are. I don't think anyone wants that. The problem is, do we want and will we worship the God who's revealed himself as he is that leads to that ultimate end? So why is God angry? He's angry because of the disrespect and disobedience of his creatures, us humans, and how we've responded from it. This is one of those truths that Paul's telling us uh, in chapter 12. We must be transformed by in our, in our minds. You're not going to accept this in your own nature. God has to reveal this truth to us because in our brokenness, our nature, as Paul's going to say here, we're going to rebel against him. We're going to push against him. We want to be our own God. And until God opens our eyes to these truths, we'll continue in this pattern as we're going to see. So that's the opening statement. That's why God is angry. How do we make God angry specifically? Well, we're going to see that in a couple ways in the next section here. So let's read together starting in verse 19. Paul is going to explain. He says, for, that's a word of explanation in this one, what can be known about God is plain to them. Very important you see these words. God is telling us that he's made it plain what we need to know in general revelation. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So he's saying just what God's revealed in creation it's been plainly revealed, is enough to condemn us as, as people. That's all we needed. We didn't even respond to that general revelation as, as 
theologians would often call it, God's general revelation of creation properly, but that was enough for us to be condemned before God because even with that, we don't respond properly. And he's going to tell us why. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul's talking about idolatry. The common form of worship that often happens in, in pagan-type places is they create idols and, and images of things in creation and they begin worshiping the creation rather than the creator of it. Now us who are so much better, cultured, civilized, we would never create an idol and worship it in our home. I mean, we're so much smarter and so much better than that. Instead, we worship money, power, beauty, these concepts, but the fact is they're still idols. And what Paul is revealing here in this particular segment of society is true in every single one of us. And we'll see it as we get into culturalism and moralism next week, how sometimes us who live in a more civilized societies or first world nations think that we're somehow better than those who live in other settings and we're, you know, better people. Paul's revealing that every single one of us is in the same spot. So what he's showing here is a couple things that are very key in, in terms of this truth in terms of what's going on. So here's your second point. is I deserve God's wrath because my attitudes and actions suppress God's truth. I deserve God's wrath because my attitudes and actions suppress God's truth. What is that truth that it suppresses? Paul shares two things in particular in this passage that I want to highlight for you. The first is this. The first is I have sufficient evidence through creation to know about God. So here's the, the first point under point two is I have sufficient evidence through creation to know about God. That's what God is saying. He has made it plain. He's revealed it clearly. He says that over and over in this passage, that in creation, he is revealed enough generally that we should conclude that there is a God who is divine and who has eternal power. That as you examine and just ponder the universe that we're in, there is no other logical conclusion as humans created by God than to say there is something out here much more powerful than me. It's not enough to know specifically about him as his word reveals or the son does, but generally to know there must be a God and he's got to be different from myself. That's the natural logical conclusion. And God has said, I've put enough evidence in creation, and I created you too as well, that this is how any person, no matter where they are, no matter where they live, should be able to look at my general revelation, my creation, and come to that general conclusion. And if you do that, you are going to live differently than how we normally choose to live. You are not going to put yourself at the center of the universe. You're not going to create images or idols or things that allow you ultimately to, to be to God and, and practice and worship however you want. It's going to lead to gratefulness and thankfulness. And that's what Paul is talking about. Let me give you maybe a simple illustration of this uh, that will help. If, if, let's say you were driving along in your car and, and the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. 
and all of a sudden you came into a zone that said 35, and you know how they put up signs that say, you know, slowing up ahead and speed limit's going to change to 35, and then suddenly you come to a sign when it hits 35. But let's say as you were driving along, you were, you know, on your phone, you caught a text, or you're changing your tunes because, you know, you can't drive without, you know, having good tunes on. Those are things that are I mean, absolutely vital to our livelihood. So much so that, that it, re- it, it negates us from having to be responsible drivers. You have to be able to read text, and you've got to be able to change your phone. You've got to have the, you have to have the freedom to do those kinds of things to really live properly in this world, right? I'm using sarcasm. But you keep going at 55, and all of a sudden, lights come on, cop pulls you over. He says, uh, sir, do you know how fast you were driving? Or ma'am. I want to convict every single one of us here. I'm, not a, I'm an equal opportunity offender. He says, do you know how fast you were driving? And you say, well, yeah, 55. He says, well, do you realize the speed limit changed to 35 miles an hour? Oh, are you kidding me, officer? I, I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't see the signs. And he said, well, we made the signs pretty plain to see. There's a few of them warning you that you need to slow down. You, oh, I, I, I mean, I, I completely didn't, didn't see that, officer. I'm so sorry. Do you think he's just going to say, all right, go ahead. You didn't see him. I'm going to let you off. No. He's going to say the signs were plain. The problem is you weren't paying attention and you weren't being a responsible driver to notice that. Part of your driver's ed, I know you guys go back and review this every year, is that as you drive, you are called to be a responsible driver and be aware of the things that affect how you drive. See, even driver's ed, expects us to be aware and if they can expect us to be aware God certainly can too he's made these things plain to us the problem is in our brokenness and our rebellion we don't want to ponder them we don't want to think about them we want to create our own gods we don't want to be accountable Paul's telling us God's telling us Try as you might, you will not be excused. Just his creation is enough to condemn us because we don't even respond properly to it. Psalm 19 talks about this as well. If you read it, uh, Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm that captures these two aspects of revelation that the scripture talks about. The first half of it speaks of God's general revelation, how he's revealed himself generally in creation. And if you read the second half of the psalm, which I'd encourage you to do this week, he talks about his special revelation, how through his word and through his son, God personally has revealed what we need to know to be saved. General revelation only condemns us. Special revelation is what saves us. And he says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Meaning, there's no one in this universe that doesn't see it, that's not aware of it. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's what Paul is saying here. It's why there is no excuse for any person anywhere for our behavior. All of us fall under this condemnation if we're left to ourselves. Second thing we see in this passage is that I fail to show the gratitude and glory that he deserves. So I have sufficient evidence to know about God, but I don't respond to it. And then the response is that I fail to show the gratitude and glory that he deserves. That instead of honoring God and giving thanks to him, 
I do so to created objects or, or idols. He says in here that although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and foolish in their darkened hearts. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We become idolaters. It's our nature. We are idol makers in our hearts. And that's very displeasing and angering to God. You might say, well, that seems kind of petty, doesn't it? And isn't that kind of arrogant of God? Well, let me give you a human illustration, and then we'll link it to a divine one. If you're an artist, let's say you're a musician in our society, and you come up and you write a song or you play a song and then you publish it and you make all kinds of money and then come to find out that you stole that song from someone else who wrote it. Or let's say you're an author and you write a book and you publish it and you make all kinds of money and come to find out that that whole book you took from someone else who wrote it and was getting ready to publish it and you completely took it as if it was your own and put your name on it. What do we call that? Plagiarism. It's stealing someone else's work. It's not giving them credit for what they did or being grateful for their work. It's called plagiarism. Now, in our society, there's some pretty strong laws for that. You can be sued for a pretty large amount for plagiarism. Certainly not worth, uh, worthy of death. It's just an idea or an object or, or something, an invention maybe that you take and you use for your own. But let's just take it to another level. Let's say that everything you had and everything in your life was given to you and created by someone else everything what if you can't take credit for one thing that you have that your intelligence your phenomenal good looks as i look out at you guys your amazing talent everything you've ever had what if all of that was given to you by someone else. Someone else is responsible for it. But you fail to recognize him and take all the credit. That's a little bit more significant, isn't it? That's probably worth a little bit more than a lawsuit if you've stolen everything. In fact, maybe just put it hypothetically this way. Let's say you identified a person and you stole his whole life from him. You took his life away. You actually took his life, and you stole his wife, his children, all of his belongings, everything he had, and you began living your life as if it was yours, and you took it from him. That would be worthy of probably as significant, as high a punishment as you could have as a human being. What God is saying here is even greater than that. Because if, even if you did that last scenario, that worst scenario, that's simply against another created human being just like you. But see, we haven't simply offended another human being. We haven't plagiarized another created human being. We haven't stolen anything and claimed it as our own from another created, sinful, broken human being. We have done it against the supreme, holy, all-powerful God of this whole universe. And we have arrogantly shook our fist in his face, saying, this is mine, and I'm taking credit. What kind of punishment would that be worthy of? You see, if that was done 
to you, guaranteed your anger would be all up and down that person in a broken kind of way. But even when you're a perfect holy being, you recognize the difference between right and wrong. And God has responded in that way to reveal to us these results. Third point I see, we see as the passage continues, and there's going to be some results Paul's going to talk about. That's what we are. And when we continue down that path and, and continue to make God angry and continue in that direction, he says there's some results that come about in verse 24 and following reveal that. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So he's saying, this is what happens when we continue to rebel against God. We're already broken. We've already taken credit ourselves. And as we continue on that path, God eventually just gives us up. You're going to see this over and over again. He's, he gives us what we want. And we continue to pursue ourselves as God or the things of this world as God. And he tells us why. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here's my third point. The result of suppressing God's truth is further depraved passions and thinking. As we continue to reject God, we continue to walk down a deeper and greater path of depravity and brokenness. Note the progression. You see it in this passage. We exchange the glory of God for images or things in this world. We think we know better, and God gives us over to those things. We exchange it again. He gives us over further and further. You see that pattern more and more and more. It spreads to us as individuals. That's what happens in our lives as we continue down a path of sin. We just fall deeper and deeper into it. But it also spreads to us as a society. Notice his last statement. Not only do we do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. Church, there may not be a more prophetic passage in all of Scripture speaking to our nation today. We not only do these things, but we are a nation that's continuing to give approval to these things. We're passing laws that approve things that God says rebel against his natural order and the way that he has chosen to create him. We are that arrogant that we think 
we know better about his creation than he does. That's what we see in this passage. This was written, church, 2,000 years ago. And yet it wasn't penned by simply a human being. It was penned by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, and that's why it speaks so clearly and truthfully to our nation and our society today. Not just our nation, it talks to people in general and how societies go as we continue in this path. So how can I escape God's anger? We see why he's angry. We see how we've made him angry. We see the results of continuing to make him angry, that our society continues to go down and down and down and approve more and more and more immoral behaviors and actions. So how do we escape this? That's what Paul talked about immediately before he shared these truths. God's wrath he says, is revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, and that every single one of us has been ungodly. Every single one of us has been unrighteous. Which means we're in a desperate place. Every single one of us is awaiting this wrath at some point. But Paul told us just prior to this, the greatest news this world has ever heard. In verses 16 and 17, as we talked about last week, this is what Paul said leading into this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he says that, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You see, even in the gospel, even in the person of Jesus Christ, God is revealing this wrath that Paul is talking about. And what Jesus went through in his judgment is a picture of what awaits every single human being that's ever walked this earth. In the gospel, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's wrath was revealed. The horrible, horrific death that Jesus experienced was an illustration that shouts and screams to the world that God judges sin, that he takes it extremely serious. So much so that he would even allow his own son who willingly came down and took it for you and me. And that brutal death, that horrific death, that death that should break and soften our hearts and rip us apart because it should have been you and me there and not him, is God showing us how serious he takes sin. And what Jesus experienced in those three days is what you and I and every human being will face for all of eternity if you don't deal with this ungodliness. For Jesus, it was three days because he was a sinless, perfect offering. And God proved that to us by resurrecting him. For you and me, we are far from sinless. We are far from innocent. So it'll take all of eternity for you and me to pay for our ungodliness against a holy and perfect God. There is only one way to escape his anger. And that's to hide yourself under the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. To trust that he took that wrath 
for you and for me and for all who will place their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. That is why the gospel is never given as an invitation in the Bible. God never says, hey, I invite you to try my son as if he's one of a dozen great options for you in the world. Not once is the gospel ever presented as an option for you. Every time you hear them proclaiming the gospel, it's done as a command. Believe. Believe now or face this holy, righteous God. And it's a command because it's the most loving thing that could ever be offered to you. Trust in my son. He took for you what you deserve so that you will never have to face the infinite wrath of a holy God. You see, every human being has only one of two options. Face this wrath on your own record or face it on his. And his is the only one that will allow you to experience the joys and the beauties and the pleasures of infinite goodness and grace with God for all of eternity. Why would you choose anything else? Why would you not trust in a God who loved you so much that he told you the truth about your problem and offered you a solution. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why it's our only hope. And if you're hearing this truth today and it's transforming your mind and, and changing you, there's only one of two things to do. The first is to believe in him, to trust him, to accept this goodness, to accept this truth in your life and begin a new journey with him. But for those of us who have already done that, it's still just as vital. This truth should move us to live in such a way that we finally, maybe for the first time, see how desperately our neighbors, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our students, fellow students, our city needs to hear this truth. Church, if you knew people in your life had cancer and that cancer was going to kill them and you were holding in your home the one medicine that could take that cancer away, would you not run over to their house and share it with them at that moment? And yet, all that medicine can do is save them to eventually die. We as a church have a hope. We have a truth that can change their lives for all of eternity. And when we hear these truths, it should move us and motivate us to use our lives to share this truth with everyone we come across. Imagine a church that really understood the hope that it held in the gospel, how it would see its community differently. Let's pray.